During the coronavirus crisis and lockdown, Rabbi Katz will be delivering an informal pre-Mincha study session on Zoom every day at 6.50 p.m. If you're interested in joining, please send an email to rabbidkatz at gmail.com indicating that you would like to be added to the Zoom meeting, and you'll then be sent the link to access the Zoom learning session. Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's the waning hours of Wednesday with the end of Yomat's Mood. And I thought I'm going to try to combine some thoughts that occurred to me during the Zoom that I'm doing every day, you know, I'm basically giving five sermons a week at 7.15. And uh, some of these ideas, the only advantage is it spurs my thinking, and uh, especially in Kedoshim T, which is this week's Parsha. And then it also happens to coincide with uh, Yom mode, which is very thought-provoking, at least to me. And um, therefore I wanted to speak about it. Tonight's uh, talk is this uh, Parsha, uh, uh, slash uh, holiday occasion. This this parsha is uh, being sponsored by the Levy family, uh, Moshe and Cheryl in uh, Bechemish, who um close and close. And this is uh, a, a sad uh, sponsorship in memory of a great uncle of uh, Cheryl's, who um, no, it's her uncle, your mother's brother, who passed away from the corona. What? We're hearing so many things. He's 85 years old. We're hearing so much of this. And uh, it's hitting people really. It's a terrifying. Listen, it's what it is. Especially if you're over 50, over 60, as many are. Kabbalah, if you're over 80, it's a terrifying. Uh, that's why it drives it crazy when you see people don't care about these things and they have big weddings and big funerals and this and that and the other. The mayor of New York is not exactly wrong when he's uh, condemning all this. Um. But I just want to say that this is an honor of memory of Harvey Bayer, Yechiel ben Alexander Zusha, um, who passed away apparently in Air Pesach from the from the Corona. My goodness, and uh, who lived in uh, Mount Vernon, and based on information Moshe was sending me, must have been some guy because he's he's the guy who opened up the shul in the morning and said Kaddish for everybody else. Ironically, it's no one to say Kaddish for him now in the current environment, as we all know. But uh, this will be. Uh, a poor substitute in lieu of uh, Kaddish, but we'll say, we'll pay, uh, we'll dissipate, pay tribute uh, to the memory. Um, and uh, so for Harvey Bear and others who uh, are victims of this terrible business. <laughs> so anyway, as I was saying, um, I was thinking about uh, Israel Independence Day and all that, which is always tricky. I, you know, I'm from Baltimore. Every town in America has their own way of dealing with this. I don't live in uh, Muncie, I don't live in Lakewood, uh, you know, or any of those things. But what's uh, kind of funny is I've seen an evolution here in my town, and a part of many, not all, about Israel and Zionism and not necessarily Yom boot to be frank, but the whole Inyad over the decades. And uh, 
A year ago, I had this guy come to my house, Yair something or other, from Hebron. In other words, from the, not the Hebron Yeshiva in Jerusalem. The Hebron Yeshiva in Hebron. And, yeah, keep passing with guy. Very nice person. Uh, Marwick sent him to me. And, uh, you know, help him raise some money. And besides that, he's, he's finishing a doctor in history so we could talk and learning, so to speak. And uh, so basically he let his hair down, you know. And uh, actually, this is almost a year ago when I had my operation. I remember I was uh, sort of incapacitated, came down to my office. And one of the things he said is, I don't understand Baltimore, you know. Why don't you understand Baltimore? He says, I go to these shows here, there, there, and there, and it's a black hat, as a Haredi, and there's Zionist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You know, he mentioned this synagogue, this synagogue, that synagogue. Uh, and of course, it had nothing to do with saying Hallel and Yom Ha'atzmut, or whatever, and, or it had nothing to do with, uh, you know, Tachnun uh, and that kind of business. Uh, by the way, just to set the record straight, this is kind of cute. We all know that famous story, they say, which is, you know, they asked Panavish Arav, who I want to speak about tonight, uh, do you say Hallel and Yom Ha'atzmut? He said, I do what Ben-Gurion does. Well, it turns out, actually Ben-Gurion used to say Hallel and Yom Ha'atzmut. I had this in one of my uh, uh, Saturday Night Talks. If you go online, you'll find that in the very early years of Israel, I just mentioned this tonight somewhere, uh, in the very early years of Israel, when Israel was a brand new thing. So uh, Ben-Gurion and the other members of the cabinet went to the Yishurin Shul, you know, you know what that is, on, on King George, isn't that right? Which was the great synagogue before the great synagogue. For a, a Yom Ha'atzmut, uh, you know what I mean, uh, a religious service of some kind or other, with the Hal and all the rest of it. The answer is, Ben-Gurion did say Hal, Yom Ha'atzmut, at least in the early years. And uh, I have in front of me a very interesting book called Gedolim, not Gedolim, but Gedolim, which is a fat book of many hundreds of pages, almost a thousand pages by Israeli academics who are interested in the Haredi world. That's why it's read by Gedolim. It's a whole bunch of professional biographies by people with PhDs, as we would say today. And one of them that I read a number of years ago and reminded was about the Panavish Arav. And uh, he says over here, Fiyam Asubra, according to what's told, the Panavish Arav did not say Tachmi Yom And in 1949, he even said Halo. So that's just, but not afterwards. So uh, it's just interesting. But um, the guy was saying to me, he says, I come to Baltimore, everybody's ready. Now, it is a year or two ago, and there's still after the wars and the fighting in, in the Middle East. But, you know, I don't get it. I see these rabbis with black hats and so on and so forth. And I tried to explain to him in my, the best I could because it was just interesting to me as a sociology thing. You know, he goes to New York, he goes to Chicago, he goes to this place, that place. And I can only surmise that the differences are more sharply etched. I don't know. And uh, it's true, you know. I see a lot of younger people, my children's generation and others. Uh, I said, Hem lo tzionim, hem yisraeliyim. Which means... They're not Zionists exactly, they're Israelists. Not Yisraelim, but Yisraelim. <laughs> uh, and what does that mean? They're, they're, they're uh, extremely pro-Israel. They do not identify the Zionist label, which is just interesting. Because here we're you know, inventing new labels. That's why I observe in Baltimore. There are some others like that are still super anti. You know, I, I know some. But increasing numbers, the vast majority that I'm aware of, aren't like that. They're uh, super pro-Israel. They just don't like the non-farm stuff. That's a different story. And 
They don't identify with Zionism because, frankly, I don't think most of these people ever heard of Zionism. Not that they would join it if they did. I'm just saying, I don't think in the education world today, you go to average, uh, you know, shall I say, uh, non-Zionist day school, uh, they don't even talk about it, okay? Uh, Now, when I was young, you talked about it, but in a negative way. It was a different, these things come and go in different times and periods. And um, I was saying it because I uh, just sent, finished off the last of my uh, Saturday night lectures. This year, number 19. And I had to, uh, because of the corona situation, had to do it solo. Sitting in my uh, basement, in my office. And I just, uh, you know, videoed myself. and had somebody fix, do the editing. Yossi Wetstein, God bless him, with the, uh, with the PowerPoint and all the rest of it. And uh, it's out now. So while I was doing it, happened to be that the last talk I was giving was continuation of the 18th lecture about religion and the state of Israel in um, the early 80s, in the second Begin administration. That's what I'm up to in my uh, series. Those of you who don't know me know every every year for, over the winter, mostly Shabbos, about 15, 20 lectures, we do on, uh, on a four-year period of, uh, of history, modern history. And uh, anyway, so this is the era of Rav Shach and Machem Begin and when the Shah's party started and this and that and the other. So I was looking around online, as I always do, to, for things I can use in my PowerPoint, you know, for Dog and Pony Show. That's what I do. And uh, those of you who uh, are not in the podcast world, uh, but who, do the, who look at my videos, so you know what I'm talking about. Okay, fine. So uh, I came across some very interesting articles. Um, I don't think I mentioned this here. I hope I'm not repeating myself. One of them was from uh, Rizek Peretz, his son. So, uh, Rav Shach, listen to this story. And I sent this to Moshe Levy, by the way. I saw online, I think it was Chadri Haredim, I believe, which is that from a magazine, like the Mishpacha or Ami or something like that in Israel. And, uh, you know, the Shah's party started in the early 80s. Uh, controlled by Rav Shach. And his uh, acolyte was a Sephardi rabbi, Rabbi Peretz, who's a uh, Moroccan. Did I, I hope I didn't do this with you already. A Moroccan. And uh, uh, and he did one four seats in the 84 election and became a minister in the government. He was minister of interior for a while. Fair, you know, uh, quite a while. And this is his, he died uh, 2013, if I remember correctly. And his son is writing this article. And his son is saying they grew up in uh, Baitvagan. And, uh, you know, they lived over there. And when it's Yom Atzmaut, so ordinarily doesn't put up a flag. But the father of Rabbi Peretz said, since I'm a minister in the government, it's not die to refrain from putting a flag on the Mer Pesed. Because then the Itanayim, the newspapers, everybody uh, will get on it. And, uh, you know, they make a whole Tarumum out of it. So I'll just put the flag up. Or no, they don't, but since now, I, I will. And the boy, the guy who's writing this article was his son, who I think was like 12 years old, something like that at the time. And he said, don't do that, because they live in Baivagana, and they went to local yeshivas. The girls went to local Basiakos. And uh, we'll never live it down. You understand? The neighbors, everybody else, will uh, will condemn us for putting Israeli flag up. Oh, my God. Uh, you can't do it. You'll kill. You know, you know how kids are. You can't do this. You make me feel bad. I'm a veteran of this. I put in many years, like many did, into carpools. And we do the carpool, especially girl carpools, basically, don't get out of the car. 
Don't look at me. Don't talk to my friends. I'll never forgive you for blinking. You know, that's how kids are. So he said, you can't do this. And his daughter said, you can't do this. And he said, I think I should. No, don't do it. And so, and I'm quoting you what it says in the article. So the guy said, said a father said to the 12-year-old son, listen, every Thursday I have a meeting with Rav Shach. I go to B'nai Brak and we talk about the political agenda of the week because he was a minister in the government. Come with me this week to B'nai Brak and you'll meet Rav Shach and we'll discuss and, we'll, and whatever he says, whether we should put up the flag or not, that's what we'll do. And the son, okay, Rav Shach, go to the door, fine. And uh, he said they went to see Rav Shach and uh, who received nicely and gave him a candy and got some business. And then when push came to Shach, Rav Shach said like this, your father's right, you're wrong. To punish Rav, put up a flag, there's nothing wrong with it, we still do it in Panavish. Your father's reasons, you know, for political and this and that and the other, he's right, so just shut up. If your neighbors ask you, why you put up a flag, tell them Rav Shach, I said it, Rav Shach Paskind. And that's what he did, according to the story. That, that's what he did. That was the end of the story, as I recall it. Of course, by the way, being that this is a really newspaper, just like American newspaper, they have a comment section. You know, for, for fun and laughs, and sometimes heartburn, I look at the comments, a bunch of idiots, right? Correct? Most of the people writing comments are idiots. And not all, but many. And oh my goodness, you had the full share of idiots over here. I don't believe the story is a shekker, it's a phony, blah, 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 prove it, you know, all that kind of thing. And the story itself and the comment section reflects the divide that still exists in anything connected with official recognition of the state, or better yet, uh, official following of what we call state rituals. You understand? You know, Matsu is a made up thing. It's not part, it's not like Log Bomber, therefore. It's also to do it, you know, that kind of approach. And uh, that's one story. And the other story, I, and I came across this because I was just looking online for stuff to use by Roshach in the early 80s. And the other story I saw um, in, uh, what do you call it, Wynette? You know what that is. Uh, is that Idiot or something? And uh, I came across it. That apparently, long, long ago, I mean at the time of the State of Israel was founded, in the first 10 years or first 15 years. So um, you still had uh, a phenomenon of Yekesha Haredim. I say again, Haredim, who went to yeshiva, but then went in the army and that, that kind of thing, which I don't think would exist today, as far as I know. And here's about somebody, I think his name was Breuer, I don't remember. I don't think he's from that Breuer family. I could be wrong. And... As I recall the story, he went to Koltora, which originally was a pure Yekesha place, Koltora Yeshiva, and uh, apparently graduated from there, whatever that means. And, um, and then he went in the army. And he ended up, I believe, in the commandos, you know, in the Ariel Sharon commandos. And this is in 1956. And if you know what was going, you know a little bit even about Israeli history at that time, it was the era of the reprisal raids on both sides. The Arabs would come and kill a bunch of Jews. The Jews would go on the other side and kill a bunch of Arabs. And each side was brutal on the other. Uh, this is the famous period of, I would say, 1952 to 56, which reached its uh, explosion in the Sinai campaign of 56, but the, in the lead up. And uh, this guy, this from, from guy, who was in the commandos, but was a, uh, a Haredi, uh, as far as I know, I mean, I'm going by the newspaper account. 
uh, was killed in battle. Um, and uh, he was in his late 20s. And he was buried in B'nai Brock. Now, B'nai Brock in 1956 was not, a, I mean, it was very, very firm, but not like today. And uh, he's, he's buried in a civilian cemetery. And, uh, and that's it. Now, the parents were very Haredi. I'm, I'm going by what the story tells me. I don't know if it's true or not, but I think it is. And the long and the short of it is the family doesn't observe Yom Asmut or Yom Azikaron. So a lot of people in Israel, I think, you know, go to visit the cemeteries, correct? For the fallen soldiers. Israel has plenty of those. And uh, this family doesn't do it. And, uh, which, by the way, is totally fine. Everybody, you know, if somebody wants to say, I do Kaddish, say Bishtanis, you, you, you know, you, I totally respect anybody who wants to, to pay tribute to a loss of a loved one, which is a terrible thing in any way that they wish. Uh, but he had some cousin who went to the grave every year, and he's always attacked by the locals who make fun of him uh, and throw stones at him or something like that. The local Haredi kids. Yeah, imagine Hasidic kids, whatever it is, I don't know. And, uh, uh, and it's sad, you know, and he, and he, uh, he what do you call it? Uh, he was bemoaning this. And now the guy turned to be 80, 85, something like that. He can't go anymore. That's the bottom line. He can't go anymore. And so uh, it feels real bad because the family doesn't go. And uh, and so there it is. It, it, it's, it's bad. He said, you know, nobody uh, recognized it. That's what he said. And, um, you know, because I think you know what I'm talking about. I'm speaking mostly to Americans, not to Israelis. So a lot of people, when they do the siren, it should be a minute of silence or whatever, however long it is, uh, in memory on the, the Yom Azikaron before the, uh, the before the Independence Day, in memory of the uh, fallen. So if you take it seriously, they take it very seriously. If you're Haredi, you don't want to take it seriously because who invented this minhag? We don't hold from this. So it causes a lot of bad feeling because everybody in the bus stops and these guys don't want to stand up, you know, where everybody is, uh, you know, standing at attention over here and this person is still sitting down. It's one of those, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do we, low naive moments that we find in modern Israel as we struggle to make a society, a state of Israel, of different shavatim. You understand? And what works for one shavit doesn't work for another. And the long and the short of this story is that, um, and he said, by the way, they, they would attack me and throw me out, and they circled me when I tried to stand attention and made fun of me. It's uh, not, a, not a very pleasant uh, story. And the long and the short of it is that some high school in Modi'in, uh, uh, Dati, Kippas Ruga High School, uh, they made it their business, they go there and have somebody say cottage with this guy. Okay? In other words, and uh, since a whole bunch of them go, I guess nobody messes with them, something like that. Again, it's a fault line story, isn't it? Uh, it's funny, I ran across these literally a week ago, you know, in, in the build-up before, uh, not planning that this should be hey E or anything like that, or Dalit or just happened to come across it. And uh, I, I noted it because it's uh, Nogaya to the situation, the, as I say, the cultural fault lines that we have uh, nowadays in, in, in Israel have not gone away. Um, and it calls, that's much more significant than hollow or not, you know, or Atachlan questions. And the reason I mention it because um, we have Pasha Kadoshim T, it's funny, it comes out this year at that time. And um, Kedoshim Tiyu is this very interesting concept. I've spoken of this at nauseam on my Zooms because I'm talking to my show people. But uh, let's think about this intelligently for a second. Uh, Kedoshim Tiyu, first of all, Kedoshim, by the way, means a martyr. Uh, that is to say, you know, somebody gave up uh, Moser Nefesh. And uh, there's a lot of Israeli gave Moser Nefesh. 
uh, I'm talking about the soldiers wise we have in my show um, on the uh, mezuzah I may mention this or not went last year was it or two years ago on one of my trips to Israel uh, it was my show and, and Rabbi Marwick and it was Shomri and uh, we put together a nice itinerary you know for our whole group we had 20-30 uh, people and one of the places they stopped was on the in the Shtachim. I forget the name of the place. And I feel bad about that. And uh, make a long story short, this is a place that had a special school. It's Yishuv, you know. It's a place that had a special school. You know what it is? It's the one where, where the, the Arabs came in that on the night of the Shalom Zachar and killed everybody. That's the one it was. And uh, they had a whole tech, it's a whole ceremony, which I was totally surprised with. And it gave it and gave to Rabbi Mark and to myself, you know, like a prize from the students of the school. Um, and it turns out most of the students at this school are like orphans and stuff like that from soldiers in the army. And I got a, a mezuzah uh, case, and it's a basically it's a high school it's a it's a junior high project. We're not talking about Michelangelo over here, you know. We're not talking about. Uh, high-end uh, stuff, it's, it's made in shop, you know. But it's a case. But the kid who made it, his father was the one who jumped on the grenade. You see? Uh, Klein, I think, Ray Klein, I believe the name was. Back in the Lebanon War, I think many of you, if you're listening to the type, you know what I'm talking about. He jumped on the grenade to save the others. Uh, that's a kadoshim to you. Right? That's one shot. But the Ramban very famously says... And everybody knows this like the first immediate lowest level interpretation. If you want to know what Kadoshim means, uh yourself in that which is more to you. Which is a very interesting phrase in the Hebrew language. Those who know Hebrew know that it can be translated and interpreted in different ways. Kadesh uh, One translation, which is the usual, and that's the Pashab Shah and Ramban is Bimachmir. Even though something is mutter, refrain from it anyway, right? Um, and I think he give, if I'm going by memory, I think he gives the example: a guy who sleeps through Shabbos, isn't that right? So a guy goes to uh, sleep on, on Friday night, wakes up on Saturday night. He wasn't over in any day of thirty nine malachas, <laughs> correct? You know, he didn't violate any drabonan. Maybe a couple misses I say here, but you know, you know what I'm saying. He didn't it wasn't a chalal Shabbos, correct? But that's not, that's not what they mean by Shabbos. Get it? If you strictly take, you know, make yourself a person who's literally by the book, some kind of OCD math and science situation, which is, I went, 30 amalachas, I didn't do this, I didn't do that, I didn't violate any of them. Sleeping through Shabbos is not what they had in mind. So, another way is, so it's mutter, but that's not the way to, to do it. Or, it just means like this, be machmer, you can do something, but, but refrain from doing it. This is the theory of Chumrah, correct? Why why are people Machmer? I'm serious now. Why are people Machmer? If it's the right reason, a person's like this. I want to give Nachas Ruch to Rabban Shalom. Correct? Yeah, I don't have to do this, but I'm refrained from doing it anyway. Actually, it's, if you analyze, it's a little bit tricky. We have what we call Hasidus and Precious. Hasidus means you go the extra mile in terms of Kumase, and Precious means you go the extra mile in Surmeira. Right? One is Aseito, one is Surmeira positive and negative. So, if a person is extra machmer and negative, uh, that is probably a siyog. You understand? 
For example, you know, if I eat this, I'll end up eating that. Therefore, I'm going to refrain from eating this. If I do this, I'm end up doing... If I go to this guy's house, I'm end up saying Lashon Har, even though that's not my intention in the first place. So I'm refrain from doing that, even though I don't have to refrain. You see, so that's, that's a theory with a logic to it. You know, refrain from this, lest it lead to be. But what about the other way around? Uh, meaning the, the other side of the coin, which is Asay Tov. You know, I only have to do this much for Tzedakah, okay, and I want to do more. I only have to do this much for Dominic, and I want to do more. I only have to do this much for for Shabbos, and I want to do more. I only have to be Yodzi to Mishnah Bura, but I also want to be Yodzi this and that and the other. Like, what, what, what is that? Okay? And uh, that's already Kaddish Asimot in the sense that a person says, and this is what the Mesil Sharm says. The Mesil Sharm. And I know I've said this here many times, so I don't want to just repeat myself, but I'll say the basics. He said, a person wants to do something you think God would like. So God does not require you to do this, that, and the other, because requirements, when you're dealing with a mass tzibur, have to be minimalistic. Requirements, when you're dealing with a mass tzibur, there's all kinds of Jews out there, to, to demand that they do such and such is too hard. But that doesn't mean that God would not like those who are capable of doing it to do it. He can't impose it as a legal obligation because there's one law for everybody, more or less, and uh, has to go to some degree, I won't say by the lowest common denominator, but certainly by the middle. And people who are in teaching business know what I'm talking about. You know, you can't teach for the one, two kids at the top of the class. You'd like to, perhaps. You can't do that. Uh, you have to do for the middle. So the halacha, classically, the requirements re- represent the middle. Uh, you know, the broad, what the zebra can handle. Uh, it's not addressed to the lowest 2% because you can't even ask them to do anything, but for the middle. But on the other hand, the person who is of a higher level, uh, who has a more elevated character, nowadays I would say a person who's been brought up better by a, a better family, is not satisfied with this uh, simple level of uh, carrying out your missus. And we want something better. In the same way, by the way, that if you have a very smart kid, very smart kid, and he's stuck in a class where most of the people are middle level, uh, if the situation is right, he'll go to the teacher or something like that and say, give me extra work. Um, which would be anathema to the middle. But for him, he wants to, he just wants to know more about the subject. Let's say it's math. Let's say it's science. Let's say it's Gemara. The kid wants to know more about the subject. So, um, that's called lishma. You know, you 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 want to do it. You don't have to do it, but you want to do it anyway. Kadoshim to you. Uh, be makadosh yourself in the area of mutter. In the sense, go beyond what's required. Okay, go beyond what's required. Now, um, and these are classic ideas. Kadoshim to you is a fundamental. The Ramban correctly says it's the number one mitzvah. Um, think well. I mentioned this before earlier tonight. If Judaism was simply a question of fulfilling laws without any Kedoshim Tiyu requirements, we would have disappeared from history long ago. Because if you can't inspire passion and idealism, uh, then the whole thing becomes pedestrian and uh, it, it fades away. Uh, this is what I've, I've observed this in my lifetime with the old type of Orthodox Jew who started out by just keeping whole generations, you know, just keeping the minimum. Their kids didn't even keep the minimum. By the time you get advanced uh, to the right place, uh, the, you know, the kids aren't Jewish, and the grandchildren aren't Jewish, or they have no shakas to anything. Um, no shakas to anything. Uh, I myself had a someone in 
that I went to school with. This is many moons ago, who unfortunately passed away yesterday uh, from an illness. And, uh, you know, from my uh, school days. And uh, he wasn't interested in anything. I looked at the uh, the uh, death announce, the obituary. What did I say about him? You know, he wasn't uh, uh, orthodox or anything like that, although his parents were. And uh, he was a big fan of Seinfeld. <laughs> this is what they put for the obituary. He liked Seinfeld. Uh, you know, the, the, that's what happens when you have minimalistic, when that takes over and dominates the, 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 the religion. On the other hand, if you have a Kedoshim to you, see each and every person, man and woman, is striving in their particular way to be a Kedoshim to you. Some people do it through learning. Some people, that doesn't work for them. Some people do it through volunteering for organizations, you know, like uh, obviously Sproul in Baltimore or, you know, uh, Hatsala or Misaskim, that kind of thing. And that's, that's where they attain their Kedoshim to you. Other people do it, you know, through uh, visiting the sick. Everybody's got different. You can't have one, one type and be Kedoshim to you. There's, there's got to be many ways of doing it. But there's got to be something out there in which you have a desire and a passion to excel. Otherwise, you're in really bad shape. You know what I'm saying? No, it's your davening technist and your Shabbos technist and your learning technist. And you just say, what are you? You know what I'm saying? You're just a Seinfeld fan. What are you? Where, where, is, where are you doing something special? Like I say, we don't require somebody to be a Superman and be the number one person in learning and the number one person in Sudoku and the number one person in this and the number one person in that. But somewhere you should have something in which you put the extra push and try to be Kedoshim to you. This is the appeal, right? This is the appeal. And if you think about what I'm saying, every society and every country, every nation depends on people with idealism saying, I want to go beyond the, 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 the minimum requirements. You can't require this from the public, but you better have a supply of those people. And uh, the United States was founded on this, and State of Israel was founded on this, and keeps going based on this. And, uh, you know, you better not lose your Kedoshim to you types, because, uh, you know, then you'll no longer have people who want to. Uh, fight heroically and throw themselves on grenades and uh, go beyond, beyond, or work overnight to get a cure for the uh, virus. You know what I mean? Those kind of things. Human progress is guided by Kedushim to you types. It's just, it's just very interesting to me. However, Kedushim to you, Kaishwans and Mutalach, in light of the two newspapers that I just mentioned, and in light of the fact you have the juxtaposition of the Yomatsmut with the Parshish Akramos, Kedushim, particularly, particularly Kedushim, so it struck me as follows. These stories that we read are uh, uh, uncomfortable and ugly, and, but they, it's a sociological reality. You have a big divide as wide as the sea between uh, you know, the, the Haredi world on the one hand and the, the Israeli society on the other. It is what it is. And uh, I don't see, you know, uh, there was a time I thought that it's going to you know, keel on its own. I don't know. And each one has its own narrative, and the firm world has its own, my, a real uh, uh, um, narrative. Uh, I have relatives in Israel, wonderful people. They really, honestly, wonderful people. My niece, who's a great girl, she told me, oh, a Ben-Gurion's worse than Hitler. Because this one killed him uh, physically, and that one killed him spiritually. That's crazy. You think Ben-Gurion's worse than Hitler? But that's how she was taught. You understand? So I'm just trying to say it's a wide gap, and, uh, and it's tough. And the worst side of it is um, when you pass up opportunities to uh, bridge the divide without yielding the integrity of your position. That seems to me is the bad part. So, for example, I've said this many years, and this is what I've observed. 
Uh, I don't know about today, because I'm not in Israel, I haven't been there a couple of years now, and the situation aggravates itself more and more all the time. But until a couple of years ago, what I call as long as Chim and Paris were alive, that's how I classify it. Uh, if we all know that the Yeshiva boys aren't drafted, for example, okay. Um, what, what's, the, what's, how does that reaction, what's the reaction to that? Meaning, how do the, the Haredim uh, treat that? If you say like this, listen, you're serving in the army and we're serving in the learning. Meaning, we're on the same side and we want to be maksha what you do the same way we want you to be maksha what we do. Okay? We want to be maksha what you do same way we maksha what we do. Which some do. Which some are like that. Um, but many not. Um, I think we all remember from the last eleven um, Gaza War, remember all these uh, from Black Hat guys went down to visit the soldiers just before they went off, and they were dancing. It was all, it was all on the internet, you know, and singing uh, all these songs and bringing food and so, so forth. So what they're saying is like, listen, you're going into battle, we're not going into battle, but we're, we, we appreciate what you're doing. This takes away a whole lot of this thing, maybe all this thing. If you masha what I do, and you respect what I do, then, uh, you know, I may have a little uh, piff here, and piff there, but really, we'll get along. But if you have a situation where anybody wears a uniform, gets jumped in Meisharim, one of these places, and people call, all the, you know, all the names and things like that, you go over the top, which is the situation, because in any kind of ideological conflict, like in the time of the Quran based Amigdash, the people that get a hold of the narrative are the Biryonim. Uh, the crazy ones. The crazy ones, I say. Right? Uh, they come to dominate the narrative. Yochanan ben Zakkai is not the guy who called the shots in Jerusalem. It's the Brionim. That's the story. Josephus says in the other I, Yochanan ben Zakkai, could wipe all these guys out in Chachma. That's not, true. But that's not, how, <laughs> that's not how politics works. You understand? That's not how politics works. It, uh, the, 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 the guys who scream and pound and uh, have a loud voice uh, and seem to be you know, the guardians of super purity, uh, they have the, uh, for some reason, they get the, the, the biggest say and the biggest influence. Um, and part of that is due, I know exactly why, part is due to the fact a firm person doesn't like to be attacked from the right. A firm person doesn't mind being attacked from the left. Doesn't like to be attacked from the right. You don't want to fight back and make yourself on the left side of some situation, even though from a strictly logical point of view, you should. And uh, so I say before you see this, I recall a number of years ago, and it's online somewhere, that Shimon Peres, when he was the president of Israel, went to visit Panavish. And it was on the, it, you can look it up online. And, uh, and it was followed very intensely by the media. And it's five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, I don't know, something like that. And um, he actually went to B'nai Brock to visit some Ger Chassid guy who was a businessman who employed like 100, 200, 300 women in some new geschäft, you know, some new industry that he was, uh, you know, making. And he wanted to express his encouragement of providing employment in, in the tech economy. I think that was the the uh, the main reason he went there. And remember, he's in the CM, he's now president of the country. And while he's there, to invite him to go see Panovich, and you see a picture where Paris, followed by the media, so it's a media event, is going through the base management Panovich and talking to these different guys. You know, it's like a, it's, it's a faked and not faked event when that happens, and they're fine. By the way, it is funny, because Shimon Paris is a grandson of Chaim <laughs> You know, That's the funny part about all this. 
But nevertheless, that's what happened. And the one who was taking him around was Rabbi Kahaneman. In other words, the Pana Vishwara's uh, grandson right now, I think. It is. And um, I think, or his son or his grandson, whatever it was. And uh, he's very diplomatic, like his father. And after it's all over, um, they had what's called Mesibadi Tonaim, you know, a uh, news conference, right outside the Pana base Medrash. And all these guys are asking him the question. So, you know, the secular media, you get it. So he said, what do you think about drafting the boys or draft dodging and all the rest of it? Uh, you know, the, the whole system where these Hebrew boys don't get drafted. And Shimon Peres says, it's all in Hebrew. He says, I'm the right guy to ask this question because I am the one that made this. I worked for Ben-Gurion back in 1950 or something like that. And I was the Mankal of the Misrata Abitachon. He was the Director General of the, of the um, Defense Ministry. He's the guy that did the negotiation and worked out whatever system we have for getting out of the army. And Vani Geb is and I'm proud of it. Because I don't I don't re- regret this. Which I was I was watching this with a fascination. You know, I'm pr- I'm proud of this because I think it's a, you know, it's a good thing. The only thing we don't like, he says, well, the only thing the Chilonim don't I'm not saying Paris is correct, I'm talking what he said. The only thing we don't like is if the boys take off time, you know, go for coffee break or shopping, meaning of not learning. You get it? Which nobody likes. If you are learning and you regard yourself as you're doing Avodah Kodesh, and especially if you say that this is what protects, you know, Klaizral or part of it, so the army is necessary and the learning is necessary, if you do like that, okay. You know what I'm Okay. So at least you're putting in your hours. Uh, it's not easy to sit in the basement all day long. At least you're doing your part. It's not exactly like being on the front line. It's a different way. Um, but if you're just using, I forget what the term is, in Israel, just goofing off, is just using this as an excuse not to have to go in the army, but um, you know, just hanging around street corners and this and that and the other, that's taking advantage of the system. And when I heard that, what this made me think that uh, if the boys, um, sheep or elsewhere, would just say, you know, thank you, or something like that, not in a dumb way, but in a correct way, uh, and as I said before, what we're doing is part of what you're doing. Um, words to that effect or something like that, something along those lines, then, um, what do you call it? You'd have a lot of better feelings. And that's called Kaddish Atzim Mutterlach. <laughs> You've been a Kaddish yourself, and it's Mutter. There's nothing wrong with what I just said. You get it? You can have a situation in which you have Mutterlach, meaning you're allowed to do certain things, or in this case, you know, uh, not serve here or there, or whatever, but you can make it a, a holy event because you can turn it into something which is a, is a um, what's the right word, a unifying aspect, you know, we need people in this, we do need people in the, we do need people in the system, <laughs> that's a fact, you need I know it's not exactly the way we usually translate it, but I mean, you need all three, okay, and the fact that you validate what the other one's doing tremendously uh, eases the situation. For historical reasons, that's not what happened in Israel. For historical reasons, because the Zionist movement way back when, 150 years ago, appeared unilaterally and dissed the Frum and uh, you know showed extreme contempt and all that kind of stuff, uh, it left a, a bad taste in the Haredi world that they haven't gotten over. Okay? And so the people still fighting these battles are still thinking of Ben-Gurion, you know. 
uh, or to be more exact, the people in the, in the middle of the 1940s, in the Sochnut, and afterwards, the ones did to the Sephardim. They're still holding by that. But that's over, you know. Israel has played itself out, maybe not exactly the way Ben Gurion planned, but Israel has played itself out to become actually a Haredi haven. I would say a heaven, but a haven. Because um, as a result of the screwball politics of Israel with the coalition and all the rest of it, uh, it so happened, you know, whether planned it or not, Israel become the great, um, what's the right, enabler of the massive Torah learning. We can't, can't deny it, right? Can't deny it. Um, it's become <laughs> actually kind of funny. And I want to tell you something. The Pundavish, I read this, reread this biography this morning. The Pundavish Rav said, way back when, and he used to get in trouble by being a little bit too, he wasn't a Zionist at all, not at all, but he was Israelist. That he was, uh, without question. And he basically, uh, you know, when he put up the flag, and these guys like dissed him or something like that, he said, uh, yeah, let me find it, because it's actually interesting. Hold on. Yeah, here it is. I found it. I went looking at this article. Um, now, I want to say something. This is an academic. You don't know if it's 100% true. But on the other hand, uh, it could very well be. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's real historians, so, you know, all kidding aside. And he says here in a footnote, Minyan Losebedus from this encampment. This is in line with that story I told you before about the flag. From Rabbi Nissen Kap, I don't know who that is. Talmud Ishim, who, who learned the punishment in the 60s. Hambasapur, he says, Kibech of Mimi Asmod, his Bakeshmes Rabbanit, Livdokim, Hadegom, Sunga Bakomo, Sir Tommy Kaunoim. So he used to fly the flag as they still do in Panovich, but once a year on Yom Asmod. So the Mrs. Panovich, the Rabbi Rebison, asked this boy to go see if the flag's there or if some Kaunoi took it down. And the story is he went and said it, was da- it went down. Um, it's in the 60s. See, like indicated silently that somebody took the flag down. He knew what the Panavish wrote to find out. But Panavish wasn't stupid and he copped right away. And he started screaming, She's Baishlehem. No, shame on them. They, let, they freed them from army service. And this is how they act. She's Baishlehem. They should be ashamed of themselves. They let them sit and learn. Beshekit. And he immediately gave orders to put the flag back up. Now, um, like I said before, I'm not sure there's a true story. You know, it's a little bit too too neat, but it could be. And um, the point is that the way things look now from 72 years later, uh, the state of Israel, whether they had in mind or not, and Ben Gurion certainly did not have this in mind, Golda Meir, created something that never existed before in Jewish history. That's what they call Chevrat Lom Dim, which means you don't have mass learners. Like we do today, so uh, just like everything is, is in mass numbers in modern uh, uh, age of industrial production, we've been able to create in Israel, not America, uh, gigantic numbers of people who are sitting and learning, and people say all their lives and learning. Uh, you know what I'm saying? That's that's how it goes. Uh, you know, with the yeshiva system, with the kola, with the with, with, with the beisak, everything else. A person can sit and learn, as children can sit and learn, if that's what they want to do, and the other one can sit and learn, and they get paid from government. Now, nobody gets ever paid enough. Nobody gets paid, paid enough anywhere, but they're getting a check, you see? And the result is, you never had this in Lithuania. You never had this in Poland, you never in Hungary, because people had to go work, make a living. There wasn't an economy. There was no government in Lithuania, or Tsarist Russia, or medieval Germany, giving people to sit and learn. The government didn't give you any money. There's never been a thing like that, 
except in America in a, in, a, in a roundabout way with the welfare system, and in Israel, not in a roundabout way. So, as I said before, whatever the original vision of uh, Chaim Weizmann was, or somebody like that, uh, or Jabotinsky, uh, which was for a thoroughly secular state, and they thought the religion will wither on the vine. But that's so 20th century. It's like, it's like kids saying now, that's so 19th, 20th century. These were the feelings of literally 100 years ago. Now we're in 2020. In 1920, people felt that way because they bought into the progressive narrative. It used to be that the world's getting better and better and more secular, more pragmatic all the time. And all the religious stuff sooner or later will fall to the side because it doesn't conform with that. But then, if you know your Western history, intellectual history, came World War I and then World War II and Stalin and Mao and all this stuff. And it turned out the 20th century, with all of its progress, was the worst century in history from a humanitarian point of view. Am I right or am I wrong? In the 20th century, more millions and tens of millions were killed in deliberate efforts than in the whole rest of history put together. I, how can it be that side by side with the most unbelievable scientific progress, you come the reverse of humanitarianism, the absolute reverse of it? We're, we're used to it. You and I live in 21st century day. The world is full of all kinds of nuts who, if they could, would poison everybody, would kill everybody. Look at this ISIS and these other guys and Hamas and whatever. You know, I mean, we know this. They'd love to do it in a second. There are those who hold that China made the virus. Look, I don't know. If they did, that's pretty disgusting. You know, I mean, somebody's planning to do biological warfare, all the rest of it. So scientific process doesn't equal human progress. Sometimes it it, it, it uh, shockingly exists side by side with the worst brutality. And if you know anything about Western philosophy and Western history, ever since 1945, this has profoundly impacted Western thought. And all those, uh, what's, what shall I say, all those optimistic and nicey-nice ideas which in the world like Jabotinsky and Ben-Gurion and Chaim Weizmann and, uh, you know, and all these other people grew up in, in which they saw the world of tomorrow like a Disney world, uh, failed to materialize, in fact, uh, the opposite. And it turns out that the world cannot do without old-fashioned values. I don't say necessarily ours or this one's or that one's, but can't do without old-fashioned values, which in the absence of any kind of belief system, you can't have values, not at the end of the day. The only value is, uh, is pragmatism, efficiency, you know, and that sort of thing, which can be pretty doggone brutal. Uh, that will foster the idea. You're an old guy, pull the plug, hell with you. You know, I mean, we're, we're, you're, just, you're just collecting money. Uh, efficiency and pure logic exist side by side with the greatest inhumanity. So it's just interesting how all this played out. I say this because, um, as I said before, this is Parshish Kedoshim, and uh, there's a famous vort they say about Hanukkah. And uh, it goes like this. Everybody knows the story of Hanukkah, and it says that it lasted, the, the oil lasted for eight days. The next year, they made it for Halodah. Why did they make it that year for Halodah? You see? Because once they saw the miracle of eight days of oil, why didn't they say, wow, from now on, you know, um, this is going to be a holiday. I mean, this is a nice. And the most intelligent Mepharshim that I recall always say like this, you can't, they first want to have a sense of perspective. You have to look back. The way things look at right now, you can't tell because a lot of things, emotions and other things in the way. You look back after a while and you can see, was it Taka really something? So this is Kalva Homer for Israel uh, because all these people had all these, uh, you know, uh, ideas about Israel. I remember when I was young, opinions were much stronger on this subject because they thought Israel was going to go 
in a certain way. It didn't go that way. Actually, it was going a different way. And the Israeli Chilonim are freaked out. They don't know what to do with the situation, and I totally get it. But it didn't turn out to be, you know, a, a nightmare for the firm or anything like Quite the opposite. And the reason you have so many, if they're not Zionists, they're Israelists, is everybody goes now for a year to Israel after high school, or two years or three years. And so they actually have a personal engagement with the Israeli reality. And it doesn't equal these ideological things that you hear here and there and the, uh, elsewhere. That's for newspapers, that's for websites, that's for blogs. When you live in Israel, when you go to Shiva in Israel, you see, actually, the, the firm have a pretty good... Um, there's always, uh, you know, challenges, no question about it. That's everywhere. Uh, basically, pretty good. None of us know where Israel's going tomorrow. Uh, we hold our breaths every day. Since the Arabs are trying to wipe out every single minute without stop, which is nothing but a plain statement of fact, so that increases, you know, the feeling of identification with the threatened Jews. I don't really understand, to tell you the truth, you know, the, the tour cart and the others, I mean, you know, they don't give a darn if the Arabs take over. I mean, really, you know, in other words, they're mentally retarded. They, you know, what, I mean, you really want to bring in Arafat or whoever it is now? Their Hashkafa tells them to do that, but is that really what they think is going to work? Uh, now, maybe I'm wrong, I ain't perfect, but from my perspective, they're crazy. Now, uh, and not only crazy, but, you know... Uh, uh, worse, worse. So uh, these are guys who go to Iran and Ahmadinejad and all the rest. There's no explanation for that. There is an explanation if you ma- if you paid me money, I can make an explanation, but not really. And so now looking back with with this perspective, it would be nice. And with this, I conclude, if all of us on both sides of the divide would be able to say, "Oh, it's kedushim to you, kadoshat from Mutalach." There's a lot of areas, Mutterloch. You know, we're not telling somebody who's a Shema Shabbos to be Machal Shabbos. You're not telling anybody you have to leave Yeshiva. You're not telling anybody you have to go in the army. They're not doing that. Uh, so, Kadesh Hansen Mutterloch. It doesn't hurt, you know? And Kadesh Hansen you make yourself more Kodesh. And if the Chilin would respond, then you, then you have a, a, a much bigger Achtos. And we believe in the Jewish religion, classical Jewish religion. I've said this many times. Achtos, which is almost impossible to get with Jews, if they ever do attain any kind of Achtos, this has an unbelievable mystical uh, effect. The classic Jewish teachings of old, or I, you're going to laugh at what I'm saying, but I don't mean it to be funny, as I always say. The classic teachings of the Tanoim, Amroim, and, and, and Middle Ages tells the following story. If the Jews would ever have a real Achtos, and everybody get along with each other, and uh, even at the level of live and let live, you know, Rav Cook style, live and let live, uh, even though it's not an ideal, but if that happened, um, what do you call it? The Arabs would uh, blow up. You know, Iran would have an earthquake, they'll earthquake and go away. You know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, they have a new civil war. I don't know in uh, whatever land. Uh, they, uh, there's a messianic outcome. This is what we believe is the power of the Achdusi throw. But it's it's very hard to get. It's impossible to get because we are who we are. But if you could turn this kedushim to you and away from being just a cliche. Oh, you should be holy. That's, that's a cliche. It doesn't mean anything, you know. It's a glittering generality. And you say, how do I do Kedoshim to you in modern Israel? If I live in Israel. Not like an American. It's easy for me to talk. I'm living over here. But, you know, they say, a guest of a Vavah, when you're from a far distance, you can see something, sometimes things uh, more clearly. If you would do that, uh, then it would be quite a, that, that would be Kedoshim to you. Right? That would be Kedoshim to you. 
So these are the thoughts that were going through my mind as I'm sitting here looking at Parshat Achimot's Kedoshim, uh, especially Kedoshim to you, and I haven't exhausted this subject at all. I just throw it out so uh, in the hope that maybe this Shabbos, uh, both here and in Israel, people are still stuck at home for Shabbos, so you want something intelligent to talk about, not just a regular Lashahara. Lashahara can take up three quarters of your table time. But what about one one quarter of your table time? So what will you talk about in terms of something uh, intelligent? Ask the following question at the table Friday night or Shabbos lunch. Uh, define for you what do you think is Kedoshim to you? Notice, how would you, boy, girl, man, woman, how would you um, like to be holy? Or would you like to do it in learning? Would you like to do it in uh, Sheduchim? Would you like to do it in, um, you know, Tzedakah? Would you like to do, you know, whatever it is. Because what area would you find is Kedoshim to you? By the way, this is a Rambam. Uh, I, I thought I'd close, but I keep talking. There's a famous Rambam, the Pesh Mishnayis, where he says, um, We all know, they say it at the end of the Pirkei of excuse me. And what does it mean? God wanted to be Mizake Yisrael, therefore gave him a lot of laws. To, 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 sort of like, doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't want extra laws, that's the Mizake people. From a modern point of view, the opposite. Give me fewer laws, it'd be easy to keep. But the Rambam famously says, because he obviously was bothered by what I just raised, in his Pirish Mishnah is, because Hashem would be Mizach Yisrael, he gave a lot of different terms. You can pick one in which you can be Mekayim Kedoshim to you. That's basically what he says. Look it up in the Pirish Mishnah on, on Avos. You'll see. You can find one in which you can excel. The problem is, if you tell me that I should be interested in the same way you are, I may be me, you may be you. But everybody should find something where they can be conditioned to you. Uh, it could be nice to your in-laws. It could be nice to you this. You know, whatever. But if you if you have nowhere at all where you can do conditioned to you, uh, the Ramban kind of indicates that you forfeit your life, which is uh, pretty interesting. Anyway, I've spoken enough. I wish you all a good Shabbos. And, uh, and everybody, the state of Israel and America, everybody here should be uh, safe. Uh, Israel goes double. Uh... And because you got the Arabs and all the rest of it besides the corona business. And with that, I bid you a good evening. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.